0: Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. So beginning the message today, I want to first just thank Pastor Brett for uh, presenting an outstanding message last week. I really felt that it was a blessing. I watched it, I listened to it. And it blessed my heart, and I know it did yours as well. And so last week, we finished out chapter 5 of Revelation. And normally, when we finish a chapter, we're going to go right into the next chapter. So having finished chapter 5, we would normally go into chapter 6. But we're not going to do that today. We will next Sunday. We'll open up chapter 6 next Sunday. But the sermon today still is in uh, the, the wheelhouse of revelation and the things that are going on in the end times. And uh, so, before we open chapter 6, which takes us to the beginning days of the tribulation, which follows the resurrection and rapture of the church, I want to deal today with what happens to the resurrected, raptured saints who go to heaven. I want to talk to you about that today because it's very important to you who are believers. When that rapture takes place, when you are either resurrected and or translated and caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, what is going to happen in heaven? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And so I hope that this will be helpful to you. So without further ado, let's jump right in to the message. So I want to start with just going back to the rapture for a moment. Uh, I spoke about this extensively on December the 17th, and so I'm not going to do that today. If you want to hear my explanation about the rapture, if you want to know why I hold to a literal pre-tribulational rapture of the church, then you can find that on our website. I just gave you the address. All of our sermons are archived there. You just go back to that one on December 17th, and you'll get a full um, explanation uh, about that. So today, as I come back to the rapture, I'm just doing it for context, really, okay? And so one of the passages that speaks to us about the rapture of the church is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and in that writing, he speaks of an event that was future to him And it still is future to us today. It is an event that sees the church age saints who have died. They will be resurrected. Then those who are living at the time of the event will be translated. They'll be glorified. And together we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's what Paul is teaching And so, just again for context, I want to read uh, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. People like to say, well, the word rapture is not in the bible pastor well neither is trinity all right but that doesn't mean that the concept isn't taught there this caught up is translated from the greek harpazo which means to snatch away to seize in the latin it comes from rapturo which means to be taken by force and it's where we get our english word rapture from so we will be those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them. The them are those who are resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Now I believe that scripture would have us understand that this catching away of the saints is the next major event on God's prophetic calendar. That doesn't mean there aren't other prophetic things that may happen before But what I'm saying here is that the rapture is imminent, meaning that it can happen at any time. It can happen at any time. And the reason it can happen at any time is because there is no other prophetic word that needs to come to fulfillment before this can take place. And so I believe that it could happen now, before this sermon is done I wouldn't have any qualms about that or it could happen a hundred years from now I don't know it's just that it can happen at any time so the question today is not so much about the rapture itself but what happens to those resurrected raptured saints once they arrive in heaven in their newly acquired glorified bodies and the answer to that question is, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what we're talking about today, the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to look with me at two passages of Scripture that speaks to the judgment seat of Christ. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and the second one is Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we, the we there is not hu- the human race. The we there specifically refers to believers, to the church age saints who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due. For what he has done in the body, meaning our physical body during our earthly life, whether it be good or evil. Romans chapter 14 verses 10 through 12. Apostle Paul writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we, again, the context there is not in relation to all of humanity, but the specific group of humanity, those who are Followers of Jesus Christ, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, and now this is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 45, verse uh, 23, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So, Paul says, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now there's a slight difference between those two passages. Uh, that a lot of folks, some folks, I'll just say, not necessarily a lot, but some folks, try to make a big deal out of. And the difference there is that one says uh, judgment seat of Christ, while the other says judgment seat of God. Uh, Looking into that, I really don't find any reason to make any big deal out of it whatsoever. Uh, Christ is God, okay? And so I really don't see there any need for us to think that these two are somehow different. In fact, I believe that they are speaking of one and the same judgment. But the bottom line for the believer is this. There is a day that is yet future where we will all stand before our Savior and Lord and we will give an account of our lives as his disciples. Now, I want you to stop and think about that just for a minute, Christian. That day is coming. And you will face Jesus, and you will give an account. The question is, what kind of account will it be? Now, before we get on into that a little bit more, I I, I want to uh, share with you, just for a moment, a timeline regarding the placement of human judgments that are still yet to come. So if you guys could go ahead and put that graphic on the screen, I'd appreciate that. There it is. Now, before I go into it, I just want to say, that's not a professional creation. I did that myself. It's not intended to be exhaustive with all the information about what's coming in the future. It's meant just to communicate what I told you, kind of a timeline of of human judgments yet to come. And I'm a sensitive guy. You all know that. And so I don't want anybody making fun of it, because if you make fun of it, you're going to hurt my feelings and it's going to crush my confidence, and who knows where we go from there. So just, just receive it for what it is, okay? That's, it's just meant to give us a basic idea. So I start there with the church age. The church age, which you see there at the very beginning of the timeline, is where we are right now. It is the age in which we are living. It is our time in history. Uh, the church age is also known as the age of grace. And I don't know why I repeated it, but... It is also known as the age of the church. It is also known as the age of the Gentiles. And I have three passages there that are listed. I'm not going to read them right now because just isn't time to read every scripture. But you can read those. And I want to tell you that the scriptures that I'm giving you on the note guide aren't proof texts, okay? But they are texts that point us in the direction of what I'm communicating with you here today. So that's what the church age is. It is the age of grace. It is the age of the church. It is the age where uh, God is at work predominantly through the Gentiles. The next thing you see on the timeline is the rapture. The rapture spells the end of the church age. This age will close when that event takes place, and it will open up the seven-year tribulation period. Now, this seven-year tribulation period is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And I have a couple of verses there for you to look at. After the rapture, we find in the timeline the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ occurs after the church-age saints are home in heaven with Jesus. And so, because it also the rapture opens up the tri- tribulation period, this judgment is taking place in heaven while the, the uh, tribulation is taking place on earth. Now, this judgment seat of Christ is also known in the scripture as the Bema seat judgment. And I'll speak more on that in just a few moments. Following the judgment seat of Christ, you see the return of Christ. And then right after that, you see what I have listed there as the sheep goat judgment. It's a very interesting judgment. It takes place during a 45 day period between the end of the tribulation in the beginning of the millennial kingdom. This judgment, the sheep-goat judgment, is also known as the judgment of the nations. Now, I just want to give you a little bit more about that one. Um, This particular judgment is one that will take place relating to the peoples of the earth who make it through the tribulation period. So imagine you... Enter into it because you weren't born again and you somehow survive all of the craziness that goes on and you make it to the very end. Jesus talks about a judgment of the goats. That is Christ rejectors. The Lord will round up all of those out of the tribulation period who remain Christ rejectors, and he will judge them for rejecting him and he will put them to death. And they will go to Hades. Now, Hades is not hell. It might as well be, but it's not. I'll talk more about that in a second. Then there will be those who entered into the tribulation period because they were not born again. But during the tribulation period, they came to faith in Christ. Many of them will be martyred for their faith. But there will be some who make it to the end. And those believers who make it to the end are called the sheep. And they will face this accounting with Christ, and they will then be welcomed into the millennial kingdom. They do not die. They continue right on in to the kingdom age in their natural body, just like you and I have right now. Now, it is also at this basic time frame that scripture teaches that the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints who died are resurrected, glorified, and they enter then into the age of the kingdom and again scripture is there for you to take a look at these aren't proof texts again but they are texts that point us in this direction as we compile them with the other texts that inform us about these so you have the millennial kingdom that takes place and at the end of that thousand year period there is a final war and and that is decisively won by christ And after that, there is what is known as the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment is a judgment for all humanity that rejected God's grace throughout all time. So just try to imagine the numbers that will be there. So they rejected God's grace, and by rejecting God's grace, they rejected the only hope that they could possibly have. And so as they stand before the Lord, the books are opened, the Bible says, and Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, which their names will not be there, are then cast into the lake of fire. That's not Hades, that's hell. Now we'll talk about a lot of that stuff as we get on down the road, but I'm just giving you that basic little thought right now. Now, as I present these things on the timeline, a very simple timeline, no doubt there are those of you who would like to dive into all those topics right here, right now. I know that you're there. I know you're chomping at the bit, uh, but we're not going to do that today. That's not We're not here to dive into all those. We're going to dive into one of those, all right? And I assure you that as we continue through Revelation, as we approach those judgments and other judgments that are not mentioned in the timeline and other events as well, we'll deal with all of those and try to help uh, bring out the understanding of what they are and how they apply and and, and, uh, and how we are to view them and look at them. So just a quick timeline to kind of give you uh, a, a snapshot of, of, of how things will unfold specific here today to future human judgments. That brings me then back to the judgment seat of Christ. And it brings me to 2 Corinthians 5, 10 again, which says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, those two words, judgment seat are taken from the Greek word bima, bima, which was in history a tribunal for rewards. The word bima is taken from the Olympic Games of the day back in Paul's time and surrounding that, where after the games, the contestants would come before a raised platform, which was called the bima, and the judge of the games would be seated on the Bema. And he would then, or she, I guess it was probably a he, just based on how things were back then, uh, uh, would then uh, recognize the athletes uh, according to their performance. So that's the historical context. The picture for us is not the Olympic Games, but it is us standing before the Bema of Christ, not to be judged as worthy or unworthy to be there. Because being in Christ makes us worthy to be there. But rather, to have our works which were done in the flesh as his disciples examined to determine their kingdom value and to see if there is any reward warranted. So that's what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. That's what this Bema seat judgment is about. So, I want to begin by just talking about a few things like like when, where, who, why. And I'll repeat some of what I've said, but nonetheless, I've learned that I have to repeat it several times for people to kind of really get it. So, let's begin with the when. When does the judgment seat of Christ take place? Well, it follows the resurrection and the catching away of both the dead and the living in Christ, the body of Christ. And again, this occurs while the tribulation is taking place on earth. Uh, one of the scriptures I, wanted, I do want to read is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, which I believe points us in this direction. We find Paul saying, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. The time. He's speaking about a specific time. What time is it? The time when the Lord comes. Do not uh, pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Well, we know the Lord is coming if, if from a dispensational view, we know the Lord is coming in the clouds to resurrect and, and, and to bring the saints to himself. It's called the rapture, and then he's coming a second time uh, at the end of the tribulation period as King of Kings, Lord of Lords to vanquish his his enemies. Which one of these comings is he talking about? Well we'll find out. So therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So we find here a judgment taking place. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. His commendation. Commendation is positive, yes? Yes. Now there's another word that's close, right? Condemnation. That's that's negative. But here Paul is not talking about Christ coming to dole out condemnation that will happen after the second coming of christ this is one in which commendation is being offered and so i would say to you that the context of the deeds being examined and the commendation potentially that will come from the lord points us to christ's coming to receive his church unto himself in the rapture And that then speaks to the when this will happen. What about the where? Where is it going to happen? Well, the association of this judgment with the rapture tells us it's going to take place in heaven. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, what? I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus here talks about my Father's house, he's talking about where the Father dwells. And where does the Father d- He dwells in heaven. So Jesus is coming to get his own. He made that promise to his disciples. And he's going to take us to where he has been to his father's house. So when? Following the rapture. Where? In heaven. Who? The judgment seat of Christ, take note of this, this is very important, is an exclusive judgment pertaining to the church age saints, otherwise known as the body of Christ. That's the who. First Corinthians 45, 2 Corinthians 510, Romans 14 10 through 12. Paul in these passages that speak about this Coming judgment uses the word we again the context of the use of that word we is not to just anybody and everybody who is human but to a specific group of humans and we can see that the context in those passages is in relation to those who are redeemed and in those passages Paul includes himself in that company so the bottom line here is that the only people, the only persons attending the judgment seat of Christ will be those who belong to Christ, those who are saved, those who are redeemed, those who are the bride of Christ. So let me just say this before I move on. If you find yourself in the future standing at the judgment seat of Christ, you know you're part of the redeemed. Nothing to be afraid of there. Nothing to be afraid of at all. You are part of the family of God. And that's not going to change in that judgment. Because that judgment is not about whether you go to heaven or hell. It's got nothing to do with it, which I'll bring out again in just a moment. But it has everything to do with evaluation of our works as followers of Christ. So that really brings me then to the why. Why. And so I just said it, I'll say it again. It is important to note that the judgment seat of Christ has absolutely nothing to do with determining one's eternal destiny. Nothing whatsoever. The when that we've looked at, the where that we've looked at, the who, clearly point to this being a believer's only judgment. Okay? So if the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with one's eternal destiny, then what does it have to do and we find in Scripture that it is a judgment. I keep using that word because the Scripture used it, but really, perhaps for our understanding, a better word would be evaluation. An evaluation of the believer's life as a follower of Jesus. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, is the seminal passage about this aspect of the judgment seat of Christ. And so, I would invite you, if you have your Bible, turn there. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, we will be reading that. Before we read it, let me give you a little context about the passage. The context of what we're about to read is Paul rebuking the Corinthian believers. He is rebuking them because they have allowed divisions to occur within the church. And these divisions are based on uh, the leaders who have led the church. So if you go back and read the passage in the context, you find some saying, well, I'm of paul or i'm of apollos or i'm of peter and the real spiritual ones well i'm of jesus and so depending on you know which leader you find yourself aligning under uh, that's kind of where you fall in the church and people are kind of divided very strongly about these these issues and in this rebuke paul makes it clear that christ is the believer's only unifying identity i want to stop there for a second and just bring that home again Jesus is the believer's only unifying identity. Not whether Pastor Mike or Pastor Brett or Pastor Adam or Republican, Libertarian, Independent, Democrat. That's not what we identify with. And we might, in earthly terms, align ourselves with a group that we think matches what we believe should be going on. But at the end of it, when we walk through those doors, or when we encounter each other in any contact, it's not those things that identify us, it's our common relationship with Christ. And that right there should trump, <laughs> should trump everything, should outpace everything. That was not a political statement in any way. Just a word. Can't help it that the man's got the word at the name. So Christ is the unifying identity, and those who are led by Men, those men are just servants of Christ. Hopefully they're honorable, hopefully they're respectable, but they're just servants, servants that Christ has used to do his work and to accomplish his will and building of his church. And so we find here that Paul uses himself as an example, speaking of his calling and purpose, and also speaking of a future judgment that he and all believers will face in relationship to our purpose, and calling. Let's look at the scriptures. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. The assumption is, is that every believer is going to be building. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, meaning it will be revealed for the day. The day being spoken of there is the judgment seat of Christ. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, then he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, there's a couple of things. There's many things there, but there's just a couple that I want to bring out to you this morning. Number one, I want you to take note that the believer's only legitimate life foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of our life. Now, there are other foundational relationships There's family, and family's very important. And there's friends, and friends are very important. And and there's our occupation, our work, our employment. That's important too. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the solid rock upon which our lives are to be built in every single aspect. Number two, this passage tells us that the life we build on Christ has various degrees of quality. Paul mentions six. Gold silver, precious stones, gems, jewels, you know, diamond, ruby, those kind of things, precious stones. But he also mentions wood, hay, and straw. Now, as we think about these different levels of, of quality, the way for us as believers to understand this is, what is the quality of the works you perform as you build your life on Christ? What is the quality of the work that you perform as you build your life on Christ Jesus. I have only one truth point today, and it's important where I put it, I think, because it it sums up this idea of works. Here's the truth point. No amount of good works can bring saving grace to the human soul. We all got that, right? We can work ourselves to the bone and go to hell. Works is not what saves us. But each human soul that is transformed by saving grace is transformed for to perform good works. And you say, I thought it was so I could go to heaven. Well, that is a benefit. But you weren't saved to go to heaven. You were saved for good works. Are you doing any, saint? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Tell me, church. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I could talk for hours, right, about the works, but I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. Let's just talk about relationship. Being a husband, being a wife, being a father, being a mother. Okay, As a Christian, how does Christ, who sees through all the pretense, How would he characterize your being a husband, men? How would he characterize your being a wife, women? And those with kids, how would he characterize your work as a father or as a mother? Would he say gold, silver, precious stone? Or would he say wood, hay, straw? And what about our work? Again, going back to our employment, what we do for a living. As we think about that, I'm I'm not asking you to consider your performance and 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 the grade that you get each year when they do a performance review. I'm talking about, regardless of how man sees it, about your approach to your work. Do you approach your work from a kingdom perspective? And if the Lord is examining that? Is he going to say gold, silver, precious stone? Or is he going to say wood, hay, and straw? And we could bring the conversation into the church. We, the church, together, we are to be busy about serving the Lord and serving one another. And so there are people here who are pastors and others who are elders, others who are deacons, others who are teachers, others who are just General helpers and when I say just I don't mean to lessen that because the gift of helps is excessively important And where would we be without those people who are willing to give their energy and time and not even hardly ever be recognized for? They're very important, but the work that you do as The church and within the church how will Jesus what would he say of you today? Would he say gold silver precious stone or would he say wood hay straw? How does all that look in the sight of Christ? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the life we lived as a Christian will be evaluated, and the deeds of that life will be judged. And they will be judged as one of these six identifiers. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw. Number three, the fire of Christ's piercing gaze, coupled with his omniscience, will put our works to the test those surviving will be rewarded. Those burned up will be shown unworthy of reward. Again, you're not losing your salvation, but our works will be evaluated. So what about these rewards? In scripture, they are spoken of in the form of crowns. And these crowns are crowns of achievement, not crowns of authority. So what are some of those crowns? I think I've covered this once before, but I'll do it again because the context of the message take note of these. 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 25 speaks of the imperishable crown. It is a crown that is given for faithful endurance through life's trials. In other words, as you face life's trials, are you keeping your gaze on Christ? Are you depending on his power to bring you through? Are you trusting that even though the things you're dealing with are difficult and hard and you would give anything to get out from under them, that God is working his purpose out? And so you endure because of who you belong to. And you know that he is in charge the imperishable crown. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 19 speaks of the crown of rejoicing. This is a crown associated with one's evangelistic work through the gospel. Have you ever shared the gospel with anyone? It's a valid question if you're a Christian, isn't it? 2 Timothy four, eight speaks of the crown of righteousness. This is associated with those who love, who look forward to, and live in the light of the coming of the Lord. Who live in the light of. Do you, do you realize that all, this, this whole doctrine of eschatology, this, this whole, some people say, well, Pastor, why, why do we need to hear? This? Is that really important? Yes, it is. Because it is giving the context of God's plan. And as we know what that plan is, even for the future, it should have motivating results in how we live. When I know that I'm going to stand before Jesus and he's going to evaluate my works, it should cause me to want to do those works in his power and in his grace and for his glory and for the benefit of other people. All right, turn the page. First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, speaks of the crown of glory. The crown of glory is associated with those who take on the role of shepherding and leading God's people. I suppose that would apply to me. But it doesn't apply just to the guy who has the title Pastor fact if you're a Sunday school teacher you're probably shepherding a group of people if you are hosting a small group and you're kind of the facilitator, you are shepherding you are leading to some degree uh you, in your home you are shepherding your wife or you are shepherding your children okay the crown of glory and finally James chapter 1 verse 12 speaks of the crown of life which is for those who faithfully endure temptation keeping themselves free from sin because of their love for Christ so here we go Those whose works as a believer are shown before Christ to be gold, silver, precious stones, there awaits for them a crown from their Savior. That's positive. And for those whose works as a believer are shown to be wood, hay, and straw, well, those works are going to go up in smoke, and there'll be no reward. But catch this. Despite that, their relationship as a son or daughter of God will not be in jeopardy. Because although there will be a loss of reward, the scripture clearly says the individual will be saved. They're going to enter into the glory of the Lord, but only as through fire. So the judgment seat of Christ, an event following the rapture of the church age saints for the purpose of examining works done in the flesh as a follower of Christ, to be recognized as worthy of reward or not worthy of reward. These are crowns of achievement. So what will we do with those crowns? How many of you ever got a trophy for anything? Oh, i got a bunch of champions in here. Yes. And what do you do with those trophies usually? Oh, you put them on display. Yeah, you want everybody to see that you are something. So what are we going to do with these crowns? Are we going to Put them on a display shelf there in our heavenly home, so that all of our heavenly neighbors will know how great we were when we were walking on the earth? Well, no. And the reason the answer to that is no is because here's the deal. This is a sobering thought. I want you to catch it. The only reason that anyone will ever be able to receive any kind of commendation from the Lord It's not because they were great in and of themselves. It is because the Holy Spirit was working in and through their lives and they were surrendering to him and allowing him to do what he does. And that is why we see in chapter 4 of Revelation the 24 elders who are representative of the church-age saints in heaven falling before God to worship him, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So Christian, we have to ask ourselves, Christians, we have to ask ourselves, will we have any crowns to cast before the throne? It is a legitimate question. And I won't judge you and you won't judge me, but will we have any? Do our lives, the lives that we are living now in the flesh, do they warrant positive recognition by our Lord? Will He judge our works as gold, silver, precious stones, or as wood, hay, and straw? Perhaps, brothers and sisters, we should take some time before the Spirit of God and with our Bible in hand to examine our lives in this regard. Know this, Christian. Our works are being recorded and we will give an account. question is, what kind of account will we give? And by the way, all that trash before you came to Christ, don't worry. That ain't going to show up. That's under the blood of Christ. Just want to make sure that's non-Christian. Non-Christian. Non-Christian in the room, non-Christian online. I want you to know there is a judgment coming for those who do not receive Jesus as their savior, and lord. it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. We saw the name on the timeline. The Great White Throne Judgment is where all Christ rejectors will stand before Him, and because they rejected the only hope they had to be forgiven and to have a right relationship with God, they will be found guilty and sentenced to an eternity separated from God. Yes, in hell. But the good news is this: is that Jesus, God's Son, the only Messiah and Savior of the world, became part of His own creation. He became flesh, and he did this so that he could represent us before the Father, so that he could take sin upon himself, and through his death on the cross pay in full the debt of human sin. And, praise God, he rose from the dead, and as he rose from the dead he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered the devil, and he brought to us who will trust in him new eternal life. And you can have it if... If you will turn to Christ in repentant faith and trust in him. If you have questions about the gospel, I would love and have welcomed the opportunity to help you find answers. My contact information is on the screen. If you reach out, I'll reach back. I do believe that if you're sincere, the Lord will meet you at the point of your need. Father, I thank you now for the time of sharing these things. And I ask as we move over into our time of communion that you will bless this time to our hearts and lives. Speaking of examination, may we do that already if we haven't. And then may we receive the bread and the cup with joy. I pray this evening. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.